Welcome to the Joseph Smith Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring more than a half century's worth of devotionals and forums exploring the prophet's life and teachings. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. As I look out into the faces of you precious young sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, and sense your unlimited potential to do good unto all nations, as Paul remarked, I want you to know that I have prayed that tonight, and tonight especially, each of you and that I will be blessed by the Spirit of the Lord, that what I testify of will strengthen your faith and desire to personally live and be, and be faithful to all of the true principles of God's eternal plan of salvation. The keys and powers of which have been conferred upon men during these latter days. A fulfillment of the declaration of Paul to the Ephesians that, quote, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. The principles, doctrines, and ordinances of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ have been revealed anew, including a knowledge of the true nature of God, a personal, loving, eternal Father, and of Jesus Christ, the literal Son of God, of whose divinity there has come another witness in the Book of Mormon. The words of Ezekiel that the stick of Judah, the Bible, shall be joined with the stick of Joseph, or the Book of Mormon, as a testimony of two nations has found their fulfillment, I so declare to all of you. The authority to act in the name of God, the holy priesthood, has been conferred upon men in our time by those same individuals who held it anciently, Peter, James and John, apostles of our Lord, who were ordained by the Savior himself when he was upon the earth. The Church of Jesus Christ has been reestablished. The priesthood of God is again among men. God has revealed himself anew for the blessing of his children. As I declare to you, my dear friends, these divine events, with all of the characteristics of the Church of the early apostles, including the personal direction of the Savior, divinely revealed doctrine, divinely chosen leaders, continuous revelation, and the witness of the Holy Ghost to all who, all who obey, I testify that the individual 
through whom this divine revelation came was one foreordained, the youthful Joseph Smith, whose faith and desire brought about one of the most significant religious events in the history of mankind. Since my early youth, I have believed and carried in my mind a vivid picture of the teenage Joseph finding a secluded spot, kneeling in the quiet grove, and in childlike faith, asking the desire of his heart. He must have felt assured that the Lord would hear and somehow answer him. There appeared to him two glorious personages, a description of whom, he said, was beyond his ability to express. I have been blessed as the years have passed with unusual experiences with people, places, and personal events of an intimate but spiritual nature, and that through the power of the Holy Ghost, I have received an ever-deepening witness and knowledge of this heavenly-directed restoration of the Lord's plan of salvation. The events related by Joseph Smith of the restoration, I say to you, are true. And I say to each of you that you can develop in your bosom an uplifting, sanctifying, and glorifying feeling of its truth. The Holy Ghost will reveal and seal upon each of your hearts, if you truly desire, this knowledge. Our understanding, belief, and faith in the vision, as we refer to it, of God the Father and His only begotten Son appearing to Joseph, ushering in this final dispensation with its great and precious truths, is essential for our eternal salvation. Salvation comes only through Christ. Joseph Smith is the instrument or revealer of that knowledge, divinely called to teach of the terms and conditions of the Father's plan, and given the keys of salvation for all of mankind. The knowledge is mine that God did reveal himself unto Joseph Smith, his witness of this final dispensation. We now know something of the form, features, and even the character of that mighty intelligence whose wisdom, creation, and power controls the affairs of the universe. God made known that Jesus Christ is the express image of the Father. In Joseph's own words, the brightness was above anything he had ever known. He looked up. Before him stood two glorious personages, one of whom, pointing to the other, said, This is my beloved Son, hear him. It might have seemed inconceivable to young Joseph that he was looking upon God, our Heavenly Father, and his Son, and that the Lord had come to visit 
and instruct him. The son, bidden by the father, spoke to the kneeling boy. Joseph was told that all of the churches were wrong. They had corrupted the doctrine. They had broken the ordinances. They had lost the authority of the priesthood of God, and that the leaders of the man-made churches were displeasing to the Lord, collecting money of that which should be given freely, and that the time for the restoration of all truth and authority had come including the organization of the church. Then, to his infinite astonishment, that he, Joseph Smith, young, unlearned but humble, was to be the instrument through whom the Almighty would reestablish his work in these, the latter days. The gospel never to be taken away again, such was the glorious beginning of the restoration of the Church of Jesus Christ. Some three years later, when maturity was beginning, Joseph Smith had another heavenly visitation, this time from an angel sent from the presence of God, who informed Joseph that he was Moroni, and who revealed to young Joseph the resting place of a set of gold plates upon which certain ancient, some certain ancient inhabitants of America had recorded the history of their people. In the course of time, these records were translated by the gift and power of God and published early in 1830. The Book of Mormon is the most remarkable book in the world from a doctrinal, historical, or philosophical point of view. Its integrity has been assailed with senseless fury for over a century and a half, yet its position and influence today is more impregnable than ever. The Book of Mormon did not come forth as a curiosity. It was written with a definite purpose, a purpose to be felt by every reader. Even from the title page, we read that it was, uh, we read, to the convincing of the Jew and the Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting himself unto all nations." End of quote. The message it contains is a witness for Christ and teaches the love of God for all mankind. Its purpose? To bring people to accept Jesus as the Christ. The book tells of the actual visit of Christ to ancient America and records the teachings and instructions he gave in clarity and great power to the people. The Book of Mormon substantiates the Bible in its teachings of the Savior and speaks of Christ more than any other subject and teaches that our Savior is the Redeemer and Atoner of mankind constantly emphasizing that he is the central figure in God's plan of salvation. This divine record makes converts to its message and to his church which teaches it. I have marveled at God's wisdom in bringing forth this ancient record in the manner in which it was accomplished, for it has become also the powerful witness of the divine mission of Joseph Smith. 
On Sunday, November the 28th, 1841, the prophet wrote, I spent the day in the council with the Twelve Apostles and at the house of President Young, conversing with them upon a variety of subjects. Brother Joseph Fielding was present, having been sent, having been absent four years on a mission to England. I told the brethren that the Book of Mormon was the most correct of any book on earth and the keystone of our religion, and a man would get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. Joseph Smith was foreordained to be the duly appointed leader of this, the greatest and final of all dispensations. After the angel Moroni's visit, other heavenly messengers conferred upon Joseph holy priesthood authority, divine keys, power, and revelations from God. Not only was the church organized un under inspiration and divine direction, but the necessary body of doctrine for guidance of the church was revealed. Faith and light was again available to distill the darkness that is upon the earth. Joseph Smith, after seeking and being taught by the author of truth, learned that God is in form like a man. He has a voice. He speaks. He is considerate and kind. He answers prayers. His Son is obedient to the Father and is the mediator between Son and God and man. The Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, the Son also, but that the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones but is a personage of spirit, and also learn of a new concept of man, his past, his present, and future state, with an understanding of the continuity of, in, of intelligence and eternal progression. Through, though Hebrew scriptures make reference to temples and baptisms for, for the deceased, Joseph Smith was the first to have revealed, revealed the purpose of temples and salvation for all, including those who have passed on. The eternal marriage covenant and the sealing of man and, and women and woman as the foundation for exaltation. Joseph Smith, speaking at the first conference of the church in June of 1830, shortly after the church was organized, spoke of great happiness to find ourselves engaged in the very same order of things as observed by the holy apostles of old. Under the inspiration of Almighty God, the church began to flourish. The Lord's promise that a great and marvelous work is about to come forth was being fulfilled in a miraculous way. The gospel message spread rapidly. The missionary spirit was touching hearts. The Book of Mormon was being read. Tens, then hundreds, then thousands of people began joining the church. The Lord, speaking through Joseph, proclaimed, 
For verily the voice of the Lord is, is unto all men, and there is none to escape, and there is no eye that shall not see, neither ear that shall not hear, neither heart that shall not be penetrated. The weak things of the world shall come forth and break down the mighty and the strong ones. That man should not counsel his fellow men, neither trust in the arm of the flesh, but that every man might speak in the name of God, the Lord, even the Savior of the world, that the fullness of my gospel, declared the Lord, might be proclaimed unto the ends of the world and before kings and rulers. Politicians began worrying over this new phenomenon. Enemies were organizing. The prophet's life was becoming endangered. After months of imprisonment in the dark and damp dungeon known as Liberty Jail, a discouraged Joseph cried out to the Lord, O God, where art thou, and where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? How long shall thy hand be stayed and thine eye? Yea, the pure eye, behold from the eternal heavens the wrongs of thy, to thy people and to thy servants. Yea, O Lord, Joseph prayed, how long shall they suffer these wrongs? and unlawful oppressions before thine heart shall be softened towards them. Then a loving, answering Savior promised Joseph, the ends of the earth shall inquire after thy name, and fools shall have thee in derision, and hell shall rage against thee, while the pure in heart and the wise and the noble and the virtuous shall seek counsel and authority and blessings constantly from under thy hand. And thy people shall never be turned against thee by the testimony of traitors. Thou shalt be had in honor. Thy voice shall be more terrible in the midst of thine enemies than the fierce lion because of thy righteousness and thy God shall stand by thee forever and ever. In Joseph's last public address to a large congregation in Nauvoo, he declared, I do not regard my own life I am ready to be offered as a sacrifice for this people. What can our enemies do? Only kill the body, and, and then their power is at an end. Then he cautioned the members of the church, Stand firm, my friends. Never flinch. Do not seek to save your lives, for he that is afraid to die for the truth shall lose eternal life. God has tried you, Joseph continued. You are a good people. Therefore, I love you with all my heart. Greater love hath no man than that he should lay down his life for his friends. You have stood by me in the hour of trouble 
and I am willing to sacrifice my life for your preservation. End of quote. This statement is all the more remarkable as the, pro as the prophet was still in the morning of his life, only 38 years old. And great as he had already become, the zenith of his mental and spiritual powers had not yet been reached. Life was precious to him with all of its possibilities and future achievements, yet he was willing to give it up, willing to forego all of the honors that might be his, the greatness which would come to him if he lived. A prophet, wrote Truman Madsen, is one who, in fulfillment of his mission, undergoes great suffering, yet through it all is radiant, a prophet, in short, is a saint. Someone has written that nowhere in the long list of martyrs, save only in the case of Joseph Smith, do we find one who volunteer, voluntarily went out of his way to die for his faith and people. In that fateful, fateful hour when the choice of life or death was to be made, Joseph Smith did not hedge or sidestep or seek to save his life, but bravely chose to die in the hope that his people might henceforth be free to worship God in their own way, and that the testimony which he had borne of a restored gospel might be sanctified, if necessary, by the shedding of his own blood. Had he been spared a martyr's fate till mature manhood, wrote Parley P. Pratt, he was certainly endowed with power and ability to have influenced the world in many respects. One may pick up the thread of Joseph Smith's life on, on any day almost of any year and find incalculable suffering, both his own and the disciples around him. Mormonism was appearing, as the scripture says, as a stone cut out of a mountain without hands and rolling forth to fill the whole earth. Political officials worried about it moving outward and abroad from their immediate locale. Illegal charges were levied. Joseph and Hiram were to appear to answer the charges at Carthage. As Joseph left Nauvoo for Carthage on that 24th day of June, he would have looked for the last time back on the city and on the magnificent temple that he loved. He knew that he would never look upon it again. Be patient in afflictions, he was told, for thou shalt have many. Brigham Young said of him that he lived a thousand years in 38. To his companions who were accompanying him on the ride to Carthage, he gave these prophetic words. I am going like a lamb to the, to the slaughter, 
but I am calm as a summer's morn. I have a conscience void of, of offense towards God and towards all men, and it shall be said of me that he was murdered in cold blood. End of quote. Why did he not turn back? There was time to escape. He was not yet in the hands of his enemies. Friends were at his side who would die for him if necessary. Some suggested that he flee across the Mississippi where he would be safe. But he continued on to Carthage. Joseph must have recalled some of the dangers through which he had passed the winter night when the, when the mob broke into his home and with curses and profanity tore him from the bedside of his wife and sick children and dragged him over the frozen ground, kicking and beating him until unconscious. And when consciousness returned, they stripped him of his clothing and covered his naked body from head to foot with a coat of tar and feathers, even forcing open his mouth to fill it with the same substance, then left him on the frozen ground to die of cold and exposure. And then while riding on to Carthage, he might have recalled the time in Missouri when he and some of the brethren had been betrayed into the hands of their enemies. The leader of the mob convened a court Joseph and his associates were placed on trial for their lives. They were convicted and sentenced to be shot the next morning at 8 o'clock at the public square in Far West. At the appointed hour, they were, they were duly led forth to be murdered, but a dispute among the mob saved them. Without even being permitted to bid farewell to their families, they were taken from place to place and exhibited to jeering crowds while the saints were told that they would never see their leaders again. But Joseph cheered his fellow prisoners by announcing that none of them would suffer death. Be of good cheer, brethren, he said. The word of the Lord came to me last night that our lives should be, should be given us. Not one of our lives shall be taken. As Joseph contemplated those dreary months of imprisonment, in Missouri, he must have recalled that night when confined in a dungeon, he rebuked the guards. He and his brethren were trying to get a little sleep but were kept awake by the awful blasphemies and obscene jests of their jailers who were recounting the dreadful deeds of robbery and murder, murder they had committed among the Mormons. This was no idle boast, for these awful atrocities had actually been committed. Suddenly Joseph rose to his feet, and in a voice that seemed to shake the very building, he cried out, Silence, ye fiends of the infernal pit! In the name of Jesus Christ, I rebuke you and command you to be still. I will not live another minute and hear such language. The effect must have been electrical in its suddenness. Some begged his pardon, while others slunk into the dark corners of the Liberty Jail to hide their shame. The power of Jesus Christ, whose name he had invoked in this rebuke, was upon him. 
His hands and feet, feet were in chains, but these the guards did not see. The only, they only saw the righteous anger in his shining face and felt the divine power in his voice as he rebuked them. But if Joseph's voice was terrible as the roaring lion in his rebuke of the wicked, it was soothing as a mother's voice in comfort to the righteous. In that same name and by that same authority with which he silenced the mob, he had blessed little children, baptized repentant sinners, conferred the Holy Ghost, healed the sick, and spoken words of comfort and consolation and promises to thousands. It was midnight when the wagon journey from Nauvoo ended. Joseph and his brethren entered Carthage, and his fate was sealed. His enemies had awaited their coming with great anxiety. The governor who was present persuaded the mob to disperse that night by promising them that they should have their full satisfaction. The next day after a hearing, he was released on bail, but rearrested on a trumped-up charge of treason. Bail then was refused, and Joseph and Hiram were placed in the Carthage jail. The last night of Joseph's life on earth, he bore a powerful testimony to the guards and others who assembled at the door of the jail as he testified of the divinity of the Book of Mormon, also declaring that the gospel had been restored and the kingdom of God established on the earth. It was for this reason that he was being incarcerated in prison and not for violating any law of God or man. It was late at night when they tried to get some rest. At first, Joseph and Hiram occupied the only bed in the jail room, but a gunshot during the night and a disturbance led Joseph's friends to insist that he take a place between two of them on the floor. They would protect him with their bodies. Joseph asked Elder Markham to use his arm for a pillow while they conversed. Then he turned to the other side to Elder Dan Jones and whispered, Are you afraid to die? And this staunch friend of the prophets answered, Has that time come, thank you? Engaged in such a cause, said Dan Jones, I do not think death would have any terrors. And Joseph replied, you won't die now. You will yet live to see your whales and fulfill the mission appointed to you before you die. The next morning, the fateful 27th of June, 1844, three of the brethren left the prison. Four remained, Joseph and Hiram, and two of the apostles, both of whom offered 
during the day to die for him. But the day was spent in writing letters to their wives, conversing on principles of the gospel, and singing. Between three and four o'clock in the afternoon, the prophet requested Elder John Taylor to sing the words of a poor wayfaring man of grief. This comforting song breathes in every line the very spirit and message of Christ. Only a person who loved his Savior and his fellow men would have requested to hear these words at such a time. When Elder Taylor had finished the song, the prophet's eyes were wet with tears, and he said to John Taylor, Sing it again, will you, John? And John Taylor replied that he did not feel like singing it again, that he was oppressed with a sense of coming disaster. You'll feel better once you begin, and so will I, replied the prophet Joseph. Hiram also pleaded with John Taylor to repeat the song, and Elder John Taylor did. Up next 
condemned to meet a traitor's doom at noon. The tide of lying tongues I stemmed and honored him mid shame and scorn. My friendship thought most zeal to try. He asked if I for him would die. The flesh was weak, my blood ran chill, but my free spirit cried, I will. Then in a moment to my view the stranger started from disguise. The tokens in his hands I knew the Savior stood before my eyes. He spake, and my poor name he named of me thou hast not been ashamed. These shall thy memorial be. Fear not, thou didst them unto me. This time, <clears throat> the voice of John Taylor was more sad and tender than at first. And when he concluded, all were hushed, but four hearts beat faster, for they had carefully listened to the fateful words, my friendship's utmost zeal to try. He asked if I for him would die. The flesh was weak, my blood ran chill, but my free spirit cried, I will. The other three in the room heard, heard Joseph murmur as an echo to the song, I will. The love of Christ was in their song the love of man was there in that room in the Carthage jail. And while this spirit of love and service for men expressed in song and prayer filled the hearts within the jail, the mob was gathering outside the final details you know. When the news of the awful crime reached Nauvoo, the citizens were overcome with grief and horror Probably such universal sorrow had not been known in an American city before. 
The warm summer sun left them cold and chill. Their prophet and patriarch were dead. What else mattered? When the wagon carrying the bodies was still a long way off, the entire population of Nauvoo went out to meet them, and no greater tribute was ever paid to more mortal man than was paid that day to Joseph and Hiram Smith. Such universal love from those who knew them best could never have been won by selfish, designing men. Only love begets love. And one, once when Joseph had been asked how he had acquired so many followers and retained them, he replied, it, was, it is because I possess the principle of love. All that I offer the world is a good heart and a good hand and the gospel. Soraya Workman, a recent immigrant, wrote while there in, uh, in Nauvoo, I felt a divine influence whenever I was in his presence. John Taylor, who sang the song, wounded at Carthage, later the prophet, wrote, Joseph Smith, the prophet and seer of the Lord, has done more save Jesus only for the salvation of men in this world than any other man that ever lived in it. In the short space of 20 years, he brought forth the Book of Mormon, which he translated by the gift and power of God, and has been, and has been the means of publishing it then on two continents has sent the fullness of the everlasting gospel which it contained to the four quarters of the earth, has brought forth the revelations and commandments which compose the book of doctrine and covenants and many other wise documents and instructions for the benefit of the children of men, gathered many thousands of the Latter-day Saints, founded a great city and left a fame and na name that cannot be slain. He lived great, he died great in the eyes of God and his people, and like most of the Lord's anointed in ancient times, has sealed his mission and his works with his own blood. I leave with each of you my own personal love and testament that God lives, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God crucified for the sins of the world to cleanse it from all unrighteousness and that through him all might be saved. He is our Redeemer, our Lord, our King. His kingdom is again established on the earth. In the year 1820, God, our Eternal Father, and His Son appeared to Joseph Smith who was foreordained to be the instrument of the restoration, which is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This church, by divine direction, is preparing the world for his second company, for he will come again. I humbly declare to all of you, in his holy name, amen. You've been listening to the Joseph Smith Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. 
please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.